Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group, Realtor Hi, Vinny. Road to Growth listeners. Today I have Galen Hare. He is the owner of Insurance Claims Headquarters, uh, attorney by trade, has kind of built this business uh you know, about basically insurance. Um, but Galen, you can tell better than I can. Why don't you kind of tell people uh, who you are and what you do? Yeah, so what I am is essentially an attorney. These days, I guess I feel more like a business owner. But what our firm does at Insurance Claim HQ is we take victims of disasters and we try to bring them back to what we call full indemnity, which is basically fancy lawyer speak for making sure their insurance company pays them what they should be paid they get all the benefits they're entitled to under their policy, which really doesn't happen that often. And they're in a position where they can fully rebuild and the only out of pocket costs they should have by the time we're done is their deductible. How how often you said that it usually doesn't happen when there's a, an issue and they're trying to get the funds from the insurance company. How often do you say that the insurance company doesn't come fully through? Yeah. so. Obviously, it's a guess because, shocker, there's not a ton of data from the insurance industry on exactly um, how often they underpay. But just based on my experience and what I see, I would guess it's over 90% of the time people are not paid properly the first time. There's a second question. Curious. Uh, I've had professors on here. I've had attorneys on here. And usually they'll carry their their title. They'll, they'll ask, okay, um, Professor, you know, uh, doctor, do you do you do you go by uh, Esquire or is that just uh, when you're doing interviews that doesn't go through? No, people just call me Galen. I mean, it's a different practice, right? So we're in a courtroom, we try cases, we do depositions, we do all the normal things lawyers do, but we're also about rebuilding communities. So I mean, I'm not. I'm not in a three-piece suit and a nice tie unless I'm in court. Most of the time, I'm in a polo and a baseball cap and jeans. Who was a, a young Galen? Did did he want to? Did he have plans to be an attorney, or what was a, a young Galen looking like? Yeah. So when I went to law school, I kind of thought it was a random decision, and my little brother like cracked up laughing, and he's like, "You always wanted to be a lawyer. You used to talk about it when you were little." So I guess at some point I kind of lost my way, but as a child, I wanted to be a lawyer, but then I actually went the opposite direction and kind of went to classical music school and did that for a while. And then ended up coming back to law school as a direct result of a hurricane. Wow. Okay. Let's, let's rewind a little bit. So classical music, what, what was that like? What were your, your aspirations there? What happened uh, during training? Yeah, I think we're just, uh, we're all products of our circumstances, right? So I grew up in North Central Texas, single mom, didn't have a lot of money. I was in high school choir. I was allegedly pretty decent at it. And college was not really an option in terms of finances. However, I was told that I could go to music school and probably not have to pay out of pocket. And everyone was right. So I ended up applying to music school, got a full scholarship and ended up graduating from a pretty good school. I graduated from Boston University without a penny of debt because I could sing. So for me, it was really a necessary thing. I loved it. Like, don't get me wrong. And I certainly at some point had aspirations to do it. But for me, it was really a conduit to get an education, which was really important to me and otherwise was not going to be available. 
again, I've had people on here that have had some kind of passion before, stand-up comedians, musicians, whatever it might be, and they switch careers, but then they sometimes they'll try to find ways to incorporate their old life into their kind of new life. Was there anything of synergy with your, your new world with classical music back then? Do you do any singing still? <laughs> I wish I had time to sing. I don't have time to sing. I did. Um, I did end up getting engaged and have been with a musician for seven years now. So oh, wow. um, she kind of handles the music for the household, I suppose. She's actually a Cajun fiddler. And um, so I, I definitely get that in my life. But I think one of the ways that I've kind of tried to find that outlet is interesting in who I hire. I hire a lot of ex-musicians, a lot of ex-artists, a lot of ex-actors. Sometimes it's a bit of a dramatic office as a result. However, by hiring kind of what I call those alternative career paths, I think we get really, really cool people who use both sides of their brain, who have a ton of passion and really want to get work done. Was that something that you learned over time to, to focus on those kind of people? Or was it something that just kind of organically happened and then you started realizing this is who I'm hiring or what happened there in the hiring process? Yeah, I think initially it was just organic, right? Like I had been in music school and my partner at the time had also been in theater school and they were the people we got along with. We didn't get along with the people that came from law firms. You know, we felt very comfortable. We were talking to a musician or an actor or a visual artist. Those were our peeps, right? So we started to realize that we could forge these really awesome, meaningful working relationships with people that came from artistic backgrounds. And then it became a very intentional decision at that point. That's great. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, I mean, again, I mean, I talk to people and they usually find kind of what their culture is later on and not up front. And so that's fantastic that you guys were able to kind of understand that uh, earlier on. Um, so you said that a, a disaster happened and that kind of pushed you into law school, correct? Absolutely. So Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. I was up in Boston singing and a lot of people from New Orleans ended up going up north and I kind of did the opposite. I came down south. I got involved in a bunch of volunteer kind of relief efforts. Those were really important to me, really meaningful for me. And as a direct result of that, I was able to kind of find what I thought was my place in life and ended up going to law school because Again, like it's about who you're surrounded with, right? Mm -hmm. So I was just surrounded by all these lawyers, all these law students, all these people, and they had so much passion and I just wanted to be part of that. I got you. And then what was, what was the transition like from being a, a singer to, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you're doing more reading, more writing, more research uh, in that transition period. How was that transition for you? So I really believe that transitions are about how you enter them. Um, down the road, you have to come up with a routine. You have to come up with what works for you. But I'm a big fan of kind of throwing yourself all in in order to make the transition smoother. I'm not one of those like slowly wind up kind of people, right? Um, so what I did was my first year of law school, I was ridiculously regimented. I ate the same thing for breakfast every day. I had like a grapefruit and like a granola bar. I got to the classroom at 7 a.m. Even if my first class was at 8 or 10 or 11, it didn't matter. I studied. I had a certain time every night that I left the library and went home. And then I studied for another hour or two. And then I watched TV for an hour and went to bed like every night. My first year of law school was exactly the same. And that ended up paying dividends. Obviously, I'd read some books on like how I didn't know how to study like 
what is studying? I knew how to memorize stuff because I would have to read scores and be able to memorize my part and things like that. So I had kind of the ability to digest written information and commit it to memory, but I'd never done a test. Hadn't taken a test since high school. Um, hadn't had to read more than a few pages at a time. And suddenly I've got like 300 pages of reading a night. It was absolutely insane. So I kind of just read up on like what the best study techniques were and just applied them all in. My first year sucked. I had no fun. I frankly missed out on making a lot of friends and stuff. Didn't really do that till later on in law school, but I ended up getting a law review, ended up in the top 10% of the class after my first year, did all those things that statistically as a musician with pretty bad grades, I never should have been able to do. You're, you're doing the work and you have the routine yet. Like you said, you didn't weren't gaining the friends. I mean that, especially moving back to New Orleans, you probably didn't have friends that you kind of came back to, I guess, or maybe you did. I mean, was it, was it lonely? What was driving you to be that routine? What was driving you to say, okay, I don't need the fun right now. I can have the fun later. What was driving you? Yeah, so I didn't have any friends. I'm originally from Texas. So coming to New Orleans was kind of, you know, being a loner to begin with. I also can be a bit of a recluse. I, I really believe in those like extroverted introverts. Like I'm very much an introvert. I need to shut down. I need to have my time alone. But when you see me or you go out and like I do these town halls and stuff, they're like, oh, he loves being in front of people. No, I hate being in front of people. But my job requires me to be in front of hundreds of people. So I think what I did kind of to cope with that is I found my own outlets, found my own things that made me happy. It was lonely, but you know, friendships are important and relationships are really, really important. So I did those later. I did those the second and third year of law school. I do those every day now, but I'm a big fan of like, when you make a big transition in your life, if you're opening a new business or you're expanding, there's that time you just have to go all in. It, it's kind of like the four burner theory, right? You've got family, you've got friends, you've got your health, and you've got your work. And it's kind of hard to keep all four burners going full strength. Something kind of has to turn down or even turn off. And I think where I'm controversial, because I say this all the time, is you at some point might have to just turn one burner on and turn everything else off. Mm -hmm. So I believe like that was kind of my one burner time in law school. And then I had to do that again as I was growing a firm where I kind of turned off all my burners, you know, family, friends, health, and just turned up career as high as I could and went that direction. And I think that doesn't work for everyone, but I think that does work for people that are really scared of failure or don't tolerate failure. And that's a core part of our culture. Like we don't fail. That's the worst thing you can do here. You can make a mistake, but we don't fail. And everyone here is driven to succeed constantly. What were those outlets you talked about? Those, you said you had a couple outlets that allowed you, I guess, to kind of push forward. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just things to kind of keep you sane, right? So my first year of law school, it was nothing big. Uh, Boston Legal, I think, was out or still on or had just come out. So, like, I watched probably all of the multiple seasons of Boston Legal that year because I did, like, an hour a night, right? Um, I did a little bit of light reading because I needed to get better at reading, frankly. Like, I was doing a lot of work reading. So I found books that I was interested in, um, probably – would be embarrassed to like talk about it. You know, now it's like self-help books back then it was like Tucker Max and stuff like that. Right. Um, you know, just funny things that kind of kept me, kept me rolling, but, um, just having that little bit of time, I got super addicted to Taco Bell. 
Uh, you know, just something that makes you happy while you kind of do the rest of what you have to do. Because if you're going to go all in, you do have to keep yourself satisfied in some kind of way. So you talked about the idea of turning all three of the burners off, but having one on. Is there a process that you went through in the second year of slowly turning on the other burners and going, OK, now I have to force myself to go out. I have to force myself to network to find other people. What was that process like? Yeah, you, you know, I think it's easy because you want those things. The yeah. reason those four things exist in your life, like health, family, friends and career is because you do want all of those things. Someone could listen and be like, I don't really care about my health. That's fine. Like, um, but most people do inherently care about multiples of those things, not just one. So it's very simple to kind of transition back into like, hey, I would really like a better relationship with my brother because he seems to think I'm a stranger after a year of going all in or, you know, I really would like to kind of make friends. I mean, I remember the first time I talked to someone my second year, he kind of looked at me weird and I was like, you all right? And he goes, I didn't think you talked. You know, I, I've never heard you talk outside of like a professor calling on you in class. I've never heard you just socialize. And I think it's important, but it's easy. Like if, if you crave those things and we all do, I think it's very simple to kind of transition back. You have to, but it's important for your sanity. You can never go all in for too long. You have to kind of strategically back off. Well, I think some people, what they'll do is when they turn those things back on, they see how good they are. They go the other direction where they go, okay, I want more of these things. They forget about the thing that they had that full burner on of schooling or whatever it might be. So did you have to put like a allotment on how much you allowed yourself to, to incorporate those other things back into your life? Or was it, it kind of, you slowly started filling in and just felt that was the right kind of balance? I think a lot of people have to put an allotment. Here's how much I'll yeah. do this. Here's how much I'll do that. I'm not that type of person because I'm very goal oriented. So like if my goal is right now, my goal is build the largest property casualty firm in the country. Right now I'm kind of in an all in, you know, I've gained a lot of weight. I'll work on getting that down later. <laughs> you know, my, my fiance still loves me. I don't know why, um, you know, and I don't see my friends as often. Uh, so, so I'm kind of back in an all in phase, but in another year, we're probably in the top five right now. In another year we'll be the top three or even the top one. And I'll start to kind of add back in, get to see my God kids more, get to spend more time with my family and friends, but having kind of strategically done this over the years, I know that that will come organically because I'll stay focused on my ultimate goal, which is to become the largest property casualty firm in the country. So I won't let that sacrifice, you know, but I will strategically say, okay, it's all right for this thing that would have taken me three months and I'm all in to take me six months now because I want to hang out with my God kids because that's important to me because I do need to spend some time cooking my meals. So I'm not eating trash today. You know, th that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think you strategically have to know when to go all in and then back off again. Do you, what was the conversation like with your wife when you go, Hey, I'm going to be turning off some burners or turning them down at least. Uh, I want you to be aware of this. What was the conversation like? And now because you have a partner with you that you can't just turn away, you have, you have to basically incorporate in one of those burners. Yeah. So, I mean, not easy, you know, not great, but it's a decision you make with her, right? You don't make it in spite of her, you make it with her. So in August of 2020, when we opened this firm, I sat down with her and said, look, the end goal is to grow the biggest firm in the country. I think in a few years, that will give me a little more flexibility in terms of time demands. But for the next couple of years, 
it's going to be less flexibility. It's going to be worse. And I wouldn't say that there were, she was always, she was always supportive. I wouldn't say she was always happy about it. Um, but you know, she gets it. And, and I do make time for her still, even, even all in does not mean ignore everything you care about. Right. It just means it's not, it's not enough of your time being dedicated to it to maintain it at a level of stasis. So like yesterday we went to the saints game together and we had dinner and that was great. I would love to do that every single weekend with her. It's just not a possibility right now. And when I get back to kind of a place of stasis, we'll do that every single weekend and we'll have dinner together a couple of nights a week. Um, during COVID, like when it was all locked down, that burner was all the way up. Like, you know, there's there's not much to really do. So, so that burner was way up. She and I did everything together. We couldn't do anything with anyone else. So we kind of, we made meals together. We went for walks together. We worked out together. We did everything together. Uh, so you just kind of have to go back and forth. And I think that, but that discussion is so important. I see a lot of really good professionals throw away some really good relationships because they don't have that open discussion. Was that something, I guess, that you you learned from seeing other people and how their relationships went? Or was something that you guys had to go through hurdles to understand open communication? Or where did that come from? Yeah, I think it's disheartening as a lawyer because, I mean, every lawyer knows another lawyer who's got a really, really terrible, like knockdown drag out personal divorce story. And then my, my business partner for years did divorce stuff. So I saw a lot of that. And I, I guess I saw what causes people to drift apart and how they react when they do drift apart. And I decided just up front that that was also a non-negotiable for me is I was going to find someone that was going to support me, support my goals. I would support her goals as well. And we would not allow our goals to destroy our relationships. Now, <clears throat> rewind a little bit. So you're, you're in law school. You end up graduating law school. Then did you join a firm? What, what happened after law school? Yeah, so I uh, joined a big firm, did some insurance defense work. Um, almost as fast as I got there, the economy tanked. So came back and did some volunteer work. I was a fellow in the domestic violence clinic. So I helped um, women and some men who had been victims of domestic violence get protection from their abusers. That was great for a ton of reasons. A, anytime you have a chance to stop what you're doing, like pause your life and just help a bunch of people, it's meaningful. And B, I also just got a ton of experience that I wouldn't have gotten as a young lawyer. And then ended up going to another insurance defense firm once that time was up. And uh, that was it for me. Uh, doing defense was just something I couldn't do. I wasn't happy. I didn't like it. I felt like there was something more meaningful. So I switched to advocate for what I consider to be victims and eventually kind of steered that practice towards helping policyholders. And then when did you start getting the idea of going on your own? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, there was a conversation at a bar in early 2020 that really planted that seed in my head. I guess it was always a possibility. I had started a regional firm and we'd grown it to one of the largest kind of what we call plaintiff oriented firms in the city. I was really proud of where we were at. I was proud of our reputation, what we were becoming, but I wasn't happy. I wanted to focus more and more on policyholders, and that was not an option at that firm. It was never going to happen at that firm. There were so many counter, what's the word I want to use? There were so many conflicting interests. There were multiple owners. Every owner kind of had their own agenda, not in a bad way, but just 
how does this benefit me? So I couldn't really be free to do myself. And some lawyer pulled me aside at a bar and offered to pay me to teach him what I do in terms of property casualty work. Mm. And um, I told him no, because I don't know, it just felt weird, but he, he was a great guy. We ended up becoming great friends talking over the next several months. And I think I realized like, we can do this. We, you know, I can go create the largest property casualty firm in the country. The standard of practice is so low that the plaintiffs don't have a ton of great law firms that are advocating for them. The insurance companies are huge and massive. So someone with skill needs to step up. And before all the skilled lawyers with these tiny little firms, it, it was like just a diamond in the rough, kind of like hidden away at some other firm that does a bunch of things. And I was like, what if we collected all the diamonds and put them under one roof? It would probably be easy to succeed. And that's exactly what we did. What When you're with the firm, was it, um, I guess, com commission based? I mean, how what was the process? Was it, was it a salary or what was your financial structure with them? Yeah, when I did defense work, it was a salary, right? And um, and that was the, you know, different personalities for different things. I interview lawyers all the time and they won't come over here because they don't want to give up the salary. Mm. For me, giving up the salary was the easiest thing to do mm. because I realized how much my time was worth in that firm's eyes. I'll never forget this. I was at this, uh, the last insurance defense firm I was at, I started on June 2nd. I don't remember why I didn't start in the first. I think I had something to do. And their fiscal year was a little weird. So the quarters, so so the prior quarter actually ended in May for them at the end of May. Um, and they had a, like a routine bonus that they gave to everyone for Christmas. So I'm working, I'm working. I'm making my salary, but I'm putting in hours. I'm putting in like New York City hours in New Orleans, which is unheard of. Uh, again, when I start something new, I try to go all in, right? So I, I was trying to really learn, trying to excel, trying to achieve there. And I keep hearing that the partner's looking for me, the senior partner is looking for me. And um, I'm not really worried about it because I know he wants to give me a bonus check, but I'm running around, we're getting trials going, we're doing all these things. So finally he comes in, he's got this huge grin on his face and he's like, we are so pleased with the work you did. We cannot believe it. And he hands me a check. And it's in an envelope, so I don't, I don't open it. I thank him, and he leaves. And I open the check, and the check is for half of what I would have expected the bonus to be. Hmm. And I'm like, that's weird. So I go into the office manager and say, can you help me calculate this? And what it came down to, it, it I, I don't remember exactly how it played out, but it came down to the fact that I started on June 2nd. They docked me for an entire quarter of the bonus. <laughs> Had I started on June 1st, they would not. Yeah. And it was the weirdest thing to me. It felt odd. Um, it, it felt wrong in my mind because I guess I'd worked one day less than the full quarter. I wasn't, again, that's just money. Like it's not the driving thing, but it did cause me to look at finances a little bit. So I knew what my billable hour rate was. I knew how many billable hours I did. I knew that my hours hardly ever got caught got cut. So like at 2 a.m. one night, I'm like doing the math. And I realized that I've earned like $1.6 million in revenue for this firm this year. Mm. And that is why they are so psyched to have me. And $1.6 million since June, mind you, to the end of the year. And I did the math and they had paid me like $60,000.
And I was like, oh, there's a there's a better way to handle this, right? Like, so I very politely put in my notice, let them know I wanted to leave, and um, we parted ways. And honestly, I think they were happy to see me go because I think they knew I wasn't going to stick around forever either. And, you know, when you have someone that's at your organization or you're at an organization and you're already kind of thinking about leaving, you're both wasting each other's time. So it was totally amicable, still very good friends with them. I even refer them cases and stuff whenever I can. But it just made financially, it, it was so easy to give up. Now on the plaintiff side, everyone I hire pretty much other than support staff are contingent. They only make money when they make money for the firm, but I give them a much bigger piece. So I have young attorneys making six, seven, eight, nine, ten times what defense attorneys that same age are making. Now, yes, you, you're making a lot of money for them, yet you were also getting a set amount. Was there any kind of second thought in your head of going, hey, I'm going on my own. I'm starting my own thing. I don't have anything lined up or anything set or was it just confidence? Hey, it's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, no, there was no confidence, but, um, but I wasn't worried, I guess, you know, I think that that's what I'm noticing is like a big personality issue. Right. So there's two types of lawyers in my mind and people want to say there's defense lawyers and there's plaintiff lawyers, but I think these two types of people exist across all professions. It's not defense or plaintiff it's salary or no salary. It's the people that need that guaranteed income. And it's those people that don't really care. They figure that they'll figure it out. If I had to go bartend at night, I would make it work because I would just push and push and push until I couldn't push anymore. And I had those moments. I remember coming home, must've been six years ago, coming home to my fiance and um, waking her up at 2 a.m. And, and she's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, there's no work. It's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, we just got paid on some stuff. We, I have money in the bank but I'm looking and there's nothing else that's going to generate any money at all. You know, we're, I'm done. And, you know, she looked up and said, well, I'll work harder. You'll work harder. We'll figure it out. You know, you'll go get a job. Like she's supportive. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's a good relationship. Right. And the next day I get a phone call. It's like 5.00 AM. My phone rings. I'm already up because I wake, I wake up early every day. It doesn't matter whether I have work to do or not. You know, I've slept like three hours. It's this guy. And he's got this huge transaction and it's gone completely south and he wants to litigate over it. And he, it ends up being like a $3 million fee for my partner and I like <laughs> life changing money the day after I was ready to throw in the towel. So, you know, it's just funny cause you got, you have to push and you have to keep trying to make it work. And someone listening to this could say, well, that was luck. And it absolutely was luck, but you know what? It wasn't luck that he called me. It was luck. He called me that day. He called me because he'd heard that we work our butts off and we fight really, really hard. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> did you ever get to the point? I mean, maybe it wasn't that time, but any other time where you seriously thought of, I might have to pick up another job or I might have to go back to another firm or anything like that. Did that ever pop in through your head and building your brand? Oh yeah. In the beginning, I mean, I never considered going back to a salaried position, but I always considered if it was a down month, I would take a part-time job or do whatever I had to do to earn the money. Now it's not an option. Yeah. Um, now we have so many mouths to feed here that if we have a down month, I don't know what I do, right? Because no, there's not enough part-time jobs in the world to keep all these people on the other side of that door employed. 
if looking back from all that you've you've learned over the years, looking back at that that young attorney that just got out of law school, is there any advice that you would give yourself? Yeah, you know, I think I probably would have encouraged myself to make the jump sooner. Hmm. And it, it's not like it took me that long, but I'm amazed at how many professionals and non-professional paths. There's so much doubt injected into you from a young age, you know. <laughs> everyone's like, I hate these participation trophies. I hate all that. I mean, I, look, I'm all about having like a winner takes all atmosphere, whatever. But on the other hand, there is an advantage here, which is that we're encouraging kids to believe that they can achieve things. You know, I don't like that. We're necessarily encouraging them that it's okay that they don't achieve. Right. But we're, we're encouraging them to believe in themselves. And that's a, never a bad thing. And I don't know where as adults or adolescents or wherever it happens, I don't know where we lose that path where we start self-doubting and that gets injected. I don't know whether it's our parents or whether it's school or whether we're just left to our own devices, but it's the single worst thing that can happen to you is that you start to doubt yourself. Because as soon as you switch to a negative, I cannot achieve mindset, you will be right 100% of the time. When when you do have a negative thought or don't believe in yourself, because I'm assuming even as you're growing, I mean, I've talked to individuals that have accumulated a lot and they still have some self-doubt when they take that next stage, when you have that self-doubt or when you've had that self-doubt, what do you lean on? Is it your, your wife? Is there something internally you lean on? What do you lean on in those moments? Yeah. So internally I think about it. I mean, I don't call it meditation. I guess some people do, but I, I try to find a nice, quiet, dark place. I think about what it is I want to achieve. I, I do a lot of visualization. You know, what does that look like? What do the steps look like? I learned that when I was in music school. Um, you can't sing for more than like a couple hours a day, max, most people an hour a day, but you might have maybe six or seven hours worth of stuff to learn. So you do a lot of visualization, like here's what it looks like in my mind and what it sounds like in my mind if I do this and if I change that and if I alter this and string musicians, man, they might spend four or five, six hours practicing when they're in school, but they might spend another three hours just thinking through like, how do I move my fingers? How do I do this? Right? So visualization, it's time proven for artists. And I think it's the same for any business owner or even anyone working in a business. So I spend a lot of time thinking, okay, what do these steps look like? How do these go? They won't always happen that way in reality, but I feel like that helps me have it planned out. And the other thing, and man, it took me a long time to figure this out. This is where I really screwed up and where everyone else screws up. Having other business owners to confide in, to talk to, not to have that territorial, like, my business is my business and I don't want you seeing up my skirt, like show them up your skirt, let them see your books, like talk to them. The best successes I've had today are because I trusted competitors with my ideas and bounced them off of them. Mm. And um, I mean, <laughs> I've made more money probably and had more success by going to other business owners and getting my ideas refined. And you want to you want to look at the difference between like whatever I don't know what list you look at the Inc. 500 or the ICIC or the Forbes you know top 100 whatever it doesn't matter what you look at every single business succeeds because they consult with other people hmm. and if you if you're a small business owner and you're not consulting with other business owners then what you're doing is operating in a vacuum and making mistakes that have already been made and already been fixed in another company. And, and that, that slowed me down, man. That took me, I didn't start doing that until two years ago. And then it was like just jumping rocket fuel on growth.
how did you find the right people to balance it off that they had the same kind of abundance mindset? Yeah, I think, you know, I think, you know, them when you see them, I think you have to be in that mindset first, right? If you're not in that mindset, you're not going to find people that are in my, that mindset. They probably have been in front of me my whole life. I probably wasn't ready to hear them or ready to meet them or ready to be friends with them. I think like-minded is attracted to like-minded when you're talking about that world. And, you know, I just got off the phone before we talked with an attorney. He's my competitor by for all intents and purposes. He wasn't even in property damage. Now he's doing property damage work because we made him a bunch of money doing it. But he's yeah. a good friend. I trust him. I love him like a brother. And I have no problem calling him and saying, hey, here's this thing that I want to do. And what do you think? And yeah. he's either like, oh, that's a great idea, G. Or no, I wouldn't do that. And here's why. Because as much as he's new to property damage, he grew one of the biggest personal injury firms in Louisiana. Right? Yeah. So... So I find people that are successful in their own field. I don't care what field it is. And I try to surround myself by them because maybe I can give them some advice sometimes and maybe they'll give me advice. And just being around those people makes you better. What's next? If let's say we're talking in five years from now, where are you going to be? Where's your company going to be? So I don't know. You know, for me, at some point, I'm going to have to turn some burners off or shift some burners around. Um, so I'd like to do that. I think I'm kind of addicted to unreasonable growth. So at some point, I don't know if there's a treatment center for that or whatever, but uh, you know, for us, we want to be the number one in terms of volume and results property casualty firm in the country. As I said, I think we'll be there in the next couple of years. So from there, for us, it switches more to an advocacy like based set of goals, meaning we want to be very active in legislation, very active in getting new laws passed, very active in changing the law, very active in protecting United States citizens and non-citizens that own property here from being taken advantage of by insurance companies. They spend a lot of time, a lot of money getting laws that favor them. And I think once we have kind of that bargaining power as the largest firm, we'll be able to shift things the other way. So that will be the next focus and the next goal, which will make us no money at all but we'll benefit people. And, and that's really the goal, right? I think every business owner should say, when I hit that point that money's not a problem, what do I do to make the world better? Yeah, no, make, that makes sense. I mean, that's that's usually the the, the, the next stage in, in growth. You start giving back and you usually get that in return. Um, if someone's listening right now and they appreciate what you're doing or they maybe they have something come, came up, what's the best way of them reaching out to you or uh, finding your firm? Uh, yeah, so we have a website and a phone number for anyone that like needs our help, which is insuranceclaimhq.com, one claim, insuranceclaimhq.com. And uh, we have a number 844-CLAIM-84. And then other, other than that, just hit us up on social media. We're there. We're talking. We have a lot of people that hang out on our social media and are willing to help provide advice, connect, whatever, Instagram, insuranceclaimhq. Um, Facebook insurance claim HQ as well, and uh, Twitter, and who knows, one day we'll we'll get TikTok rolling or something. But uh, <laughs> but for now, we feel like that's pretty good. That's great. Well, well I appreciate you uh, being here. Hopefully, everyone listening got some great nuggets. It doesn't matter if you're you're a singer, a stand-up comedian, actor. You might have a place over at uh, Galen's uh, uh, firm right there. So thank you, Galen, for for being here. Everyone, please subscribe, please share, and go tell your friends. Bye, everyone.
Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.